Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. During a long and distinguished career spanning nearly four decades, Ryan Crocker served as U.S. Ambassador six times in some of the most challenging countries, including Lebanon, Kuwait, Syria, Pakistan, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Since his retirement, students at Texas A&M, Yale, and now Princeton, where he is diplomat in residence, have had the valuable opportunity to take his classes. Ambassador Crocker has always been a strong backer of World Affairs Council, supporting leadership visits by councils to Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, giving those of us who had the good opportunity to participate valuable insights into the conduct and challenges facing U.S. foreign policy. Since 2013, he has served on the Broadcasting Board of Governors, and in 2009, he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, our country's highest civilian award. Welcome back to Dallas. It's great to be here, Jim. Thanks. Few people know Afghanistan better than you, and this morning we sadly learned that three U.S. service members were killed and others wounded by a roadside bomb. We're now in the 18th year of the conflict, and the violence in Afghanistan continues to be a daily occurrence, and presidential elections are scheduled, we hope, for next spring, but they may be in jeopardy for being postponed. What role is the U.S. playing now? And just as importantly, from your perspective, is the course that we're following the best one? Afghanistan is hard. It's, it's hard all the time. It's going to go on being hard. We've been engaged there, as you note, for 17 years. I think we need to stay engaged. We have reduced our troops down to a, a fraction of what they were when I served as ambassador to Afghanistan in 2011-2012. Today's tragic losses indicate that it's going to continue to be dangerous. but. We're nowhere near the level of casualties we were at the high water mark of our deployment. We have to consider not only the costs, but what's at stake here. We've seen this movie. We have seen what came out of Afghanistan to attack us here in the United States on 9-11. The same protagonists are still there, the Taliban and al-Qaeda behind them. We know what they did. I think it would be foolhardy to assume that somehow They've changed agendas and kind of just want to immigrate to Wisconsin and sell life insurance. If anything, they are tougher, smarter, and harder than they were on 9-11. If the Taliban is able to retake the country, they'll bring al-Qaeda in with them. And again, we'll see a situation in which they have the luxury of time and space and security to plan more strategic level attacks. It would be inexcusable in the extreme for any administration to allow those conditions to replicate themselves. Will this go on forever? I don't know. I do think that it is at a sustainable level for us now. President Trump has said now a year and a half ago, we have vital interests in Afghanistan. We need to have the resources and the assets there to support those interests. You say sustainable. The casualties for the U.S., as awful as they are, they're relatively small. But a report came out just recently from Brookings that said that the Afghan security forces have suffered between 200 and 300 casualties a week. How sustainable is that for them? I think we just need to look back a bit in history to look at a comparable situation, if you will. Uh, the Soviets 
pulled out of Afghanistan in defeat in 1989. Did that lead to the collapse of the Afghan security forces in the Afghan state? No, it did not. The uh, security forces soldiered on, at least holding their own ground with no Soviet support for three more years. The army didn't disintegrate until it stopped getting paid. Afghans are an incredibly tough, tenacious people, whatever side of the fight they're on. It's what makes the Taliban a formidable enemy, but it's also what sustains an Afghan security force in spite of these levels of casualties. They'll stick with the fight as long as we stick with them. Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad, who is now U.S. government's peace envoy, reportedly said that he was hopeful for some type of deal by April. It seems hard to believe that that could happen, but what would be the construction of such a deal, and should we be negotiating directly with the Taliban, or does Afghanistan government have to be at the table too, or are they? I would be very careful about any negotiations. Certainly, we should not be at the table with the Taliban and without the Afghan government. And we have been doing that, right? Apparently, we have. I've seen those reports. I don't think I have seen official confirmation of them. Why do we not want to do that? Because it will delegitimize the Afghan government. That the, We're talking to the Taliban about the future of Afghanistan without the Afghan government being in the room. Clearly not a place we want to be. I would urge caution overall with or without the Afghan government involved. Right now, with the Taliban certainly gaining further ground, quite literally, in Afghanistan, this is not the time for a definitive negotiation on the future of the country. I would be worried that any peace talks convened under these circumstances would resemble the Paris peace talks on Vietnam, where it is really established, if unsaid at the very beginning, that we were negotiating our surrender and simply looking for a way to put some lipstick on it and make it look good by a few more years, but that the end result would be an American withdrawal in defeat. Those are the kinds of circumstances we're looking at now in Afghanistan, not the circumstances under which one should negotiate. Let's turn to Iran for a moment, because I read an uh, interview that you gave, and you said that immediately after 9-11, the Iranian government was actually supportive or did some things that were assistance to the United States. Why have we been unable to develop closer relations with Iran? Well, the U.S.-Iranian relationship, of course, is filled with all kinds of issues, problems, things we've done, things they've done. I'm in the Foreign Service. A long Pe history. People in my career field uh, do not forget the 444 days that mm -hmm. Our diplomatic colleagues were held hostages, something that had never happened in diplomatic history before. So there's a lot of baggage there on both sides. After 9-11, there was, there was a moment. The uh, Taliban, of course, was the sworn enemy of the Islamic Republic of Iran. There's only room for one type of Islamic state, so this is an existential conflict. In 1999, the two countries almost went to war. After 9-11, we had this moment when we faced a common enemy uh, in Afghanistan, and I was involved in direct negotiations with the Iranians during that period uh, in which we got some important things done. Uh, agreement on the Karzai interim administration was at its heart at the Bonn Conference, a U.S.-Iranian agreement. I worked with the Iranians on issues relating to al-Qaeda operatives in Iran one of which was rendered not to us, but to the Karzai government. 
uh, as the result of our conversations. We were talking about the rendition of Gobadin Hikmatyar, one of the Civil War warlords and a particular nemesis of ours, to, to have him rendered to the Afghan government. And then we had State of the Union January 2002. I was the in famous speech. The famous speech. I was in Kabul at the time when President Bush labeled Iran part of the axis of evil. Were you in the loop at all? No. No. Uh, my staff woke me up in the middle of the night saying, in effect, boss, you're really not going to like this. That ended that particular chapter. For the period September to January, the Iranians, I think, were entertaining a qualitatively different relationship with the United States. And that included the commander of Iran's Quds Force, Qasem Soleimani, their overseas uh, operations element. After January, uh, it basically made the hardliners case that uh, we would always be an enemy, we could never be trusted, and that, of course, is the era in which we still dwell. So now with the withdrawal of the United States from the Iran deal, the JCPOA, what does that mean for relations with Iran? And particularly, how does it affect the United States' position in the world? The cardinal rule, I think, of international diplomacy is to avoid isolation while doing everything possible to isolate your adversary. Uh, we kind of did that in reverse. Through the negotiation of the JCPOA, we basically boxed Iran in. Remember, this was a multilateral agreement, not a bilateral. We had the Perm Five and Germany. Somehow the administration, the Obama administration, kept everybody on side, and that was no small thing. Certainly worth it. Worth it to get an imperfect agreement. All negotiated agreements are imperfect. Mm -hmm. But not only did it limit Iran's nuclear development, it kept us and others united, and it served to isolate Iran. By pulling out of it, we effectively have isolated ourselves. We will see how this goes as we seek to tighten up economic pressure on the Iranian government, but we have to be very, very careful of creating a situation in which they turn the tables and we are the ones who are isolated, because that, I'm afraid, is a very likely conclusion. And the impact that may have on other, other relations. Well, absolutely. Look, um, Iran has gained ground, literally, in Iraq, once we decided to absent ourselves there, in Afghanistan, in Yemen, and most troubling of all, I think, in Syria, uh, where they have emerged as the uh, dominant force on the ground, supporting the uh, Assad regime and its crimes against its own people, and we are not the dominant force there, to put it mildly, with our 2,000 or so troops. Russia, Iran, and the Assad regime itself, as well as Hezbollah, have more men and more firepower than we do. We need to think very carefully about what our posture is going to be in Syria going forward. Before we go, you serve on the advisory board of an organization with an important but not widely known mission, No One Left Behind is the name of the organization. Tell us about its work and why is it so urgent? The No One Left Behind organization, of which I am proud to be associated, was created by a, an American military veteran, Matt Zeller, and it grew out of his experiences in Iraq. That He had had his life saved by an interpreter who then was left behind when his unit redeployed. He devoted enormous efforts to bringing that interpreter to safety and did so and then dug in for the long haul, doing everything he can in conjunction with others 
uh, to see that indeed that no one is left behind, that those who served us and risked their lives in doing so, that we would stand up for them and bring them to this country with their families from danger into safety. It shouldn't be so hard. Unfortunately, it is, but Matt and his colleagues are more than up to the fight. They have done enormous good, not just as a humanitarian matter, matter, although that is, of course, paramount, but also understanding that the way we behave toward these interpreters and others who assist us in Afghanistan and in Iraq is going to affect future events. If the world sees sees that we are going to abandon those who helped us to persecution and perhaps death, we're going to have a lot of trouble getting people to help us in the future. Well, the figure I read was that one Afghan is killed every 36 hours because of his or her affiliation with the United States. Is that accurate? Uh, it, it's hard to know, but, but certainly a large number, far too large, of both Afghans and Iraqis have indeed been killed because of their association with us. We have an urgent need. Again, this is where our interests and our values come together. Mm-hmm. That isn't always the case. Here it is. We owe these people. They risked their lives to help us, and we're going to need to do this in the future. That's uh, and, and the organization's name, again, is No One Left Behind, and they have a very good website. That is correct. I want to thank you again, Ambassador Crocker, for being our guest on a Global IQ Minute. If you enjoyed today's program, please tell your friends, share it, and let us know what you think. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.